My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and I will see you there. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is the Senior Vice President and Head of Private Banking at Key International Bank headquartered in the beautiful islands of Ambergris Key in Belize. Outside of the bank, he serves as the instructor at the FinTech School, which provides online training courses and the latest technology and innovation developments within the financial service industry. He is also the published author of The Digital Banking Revolution. Please welcome to the show, Luigi Favigi. Luigi, how are you, sir? Good and you, thank you. My pleasure. I'm really excited to have you here. I mean, this has only been, what, three years in the making. Three <laughs> years we've been buddies. We've been messaging back and forth every single day. And uh, I'm super excited to have you here on the show. Yeah, I would, I would shake your hand, but it's a pandemic. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah, there we go. Elbow bump. Excellent. <laughs> so, Luigi, why don't you take a minute and kind of talk us through your backstory. How did you start working in banking and specifically offshore and private banking? Sure. So, I guess I've had quite a story financial services uh, back on the last 10 years. I, uh, I've been involved with the Federal Trade Commission on some research on the accuracy of credit unions in, in the USA. Uh, I then ran a media division of an investment firm um, and then tried to start running kind of quasi-financial services firm and then ended up um, in offshore international banking. So that's a, a lot of stuff in a very short period of time. Let's unpack a couple of those things. So first of all, like, you're international man of mystery. I'm going to put you on the spot. You are like have like 40 different nationalities. You have residency in every country in the world. You speak like 12 languages. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Can I can I confirm or deny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just I um, at once my MBA university in Italy. We had a speaker, and he actually said, um, "Look, you know, the first 10 years basically out of university, try everything, do everything, um, and then once you've you know, at least done a good 10 years of varied things, then decide as to where you want to actually be in life and what you want to actually pursue. Okay, and so that's what you did? You went from Italy and then? Yeah, so, well, I was actually originally on a golf scholarship in America. Um, so, and before I was actually a swimmer, I was uh, on a scholarship for my husband in South Africa, in fact. And um, somehow I went from swimming to golf and then realized that um, if I didn't, you know, start studying, I was probably going to starve on tour because the, the level was pretty pretty high. I was, and so then ended up doing an MBA in Italy and then ended up in Australasia for, for a period and then um, ended up back in the States and then, yeah, uh, down to Belize and then 
now in Panama, was back and forth between Belize and Panama. Yeah, and we met almost three years ago in Dubai yeah. at a conference, and then started hanging out. And then when I moved over to Panama, then you're based out of Panama, and uh, yeah, so lots in common. So I guess today what I want to do is talk to you a little bit about offshore banking. Sure. Um, and then obviously your book, because I mean, I read you're in what your third edition of your yep. book right now. I read your first edition when I was doing research for some articles and some of, uh, for my work, for my writing, I was looking into what the FinTech industry was doing. So I guess let's start off by, you know, what is an offshore bank? Uh, sure. So I, I guess it's best to use an example. Um, like, for example, in Belize, you have a lot of North Americans that come to the island and they fall in love with, with the place and they actually want to buy a property. Um, then they call their bank in, in the United States or, or Canada and the bank says, there's no way we're going to actually finance anything done, for example, in Belize, um, be it Belize, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, etc. And so then the individual would then go to a local bank and the local banks would not therefore touch you at all because you're not a resident or citizen of that respective country. Um, and so us, well, as the role I'm in, international banking, people then come to us because they, we're allowed to finance and, and help them achieve their, their dreams and goals for, for their, their property in, in the region. So do you think that that's most offshore banks, why that's set up? Or is that specific for Belize? Is that a location-specific well, example? Well, that's, a lot of international banks are, are fairly similar as, as to how they got started. A lot of people saw a gap um, in the market for financing for foreigners. Um, and, you know, just generally offshore banking services, being able to open remotely, um, have multiple currencies. Um, yeah, people just want it, want it a little bit more than what they can get um, in the United States or Canada. Well, and then I've seen what a lot of people seem to not understand is when you're using an offshore bank, and we can use Belize as an example, um, a Belizean bank as an offshore bank actually doesn't hold Belizean dollars. Yes, actually, per, per the International uh, Banking Act, we, we're actually not allowed to even uh, go near Belize dollars at all. Um, it's, we just, it's all, all major currencies, uh, Canadian dollars, British pounds, Swiss francs, euros, US dollars, but um, no, no Belize dollars. And, um, you know, that's, that's not just strictly Belize, that's also uh, throughout the region. You, you find most international banks wherever they're headquartered, they don't actually... Um, deal with the, with the local currency. Because I've seen that before. Clients have come to me and they said, well, I want a bank in one of these countries, but I don't want to hold my money in Belizean dollars. And it's like, well, actually, you can't hold your money in Belizean dollars in an offshore bank. As I understand, it's actually against the law. It's actually yeah. illegal. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so that's not something that people need to worry about. But give me a couple of other examples of why people might choose to use an offshore bank. Why aren't they just using... Okay, besides our real estate example, why aren't people just using their local bank? The, the sure, so I mean, I once again use Belize as an example. Um, Belize has a very strong uh, Bank Secrecy Act. Um, a lot of people are attracted to that. Um, we also, our liquidity ratios are, I'd say, four to five times higher than those in, in North America. Um, so for basically, for, for every dollar that goes into the bank, at least a quarter of it has to sit there in cash. Um, so people are also attracted to that. Um, People are also attracted to uh, no exchange controls. So if you want to put in several million today, you can take that several million tomorrow. There's, there's actually no exchange controls. So um, yeah, there's a lot of positives like that. But, uh, and then also access to financing where you, know, you wouldn't necessarily, as I said before, be able to um, you know, finance your dream home, holiday home down there. Um, it's because of us that, that, that you're essentially able to do that. Mm -hmm. What about for entrepreneurs from a business side? I've seen a lot of times when people are trying to do business and maybe their partner is in another country or, you know, we work a lot with drop shippers and people that are sending things out of China. Yeah. Maybe they want their bank physically located closer to where they're doing business. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, that's another great point, Mikhail. And that's, um, you know, if you've just got, for example, a North American based bank, you know, within the U.S. financial system, that works fantastically well. But when you start needing to make a transfer to, say, Thailand or Malaysia or Hong Kong, it starts to get a little bit more problematic. So an international bank that's kind of already in the ecosystem can actually help you facilitate wires a lot better. Okay. Okay, so I understand your examples from that side, but let's dive into some of the examples from the expat side, from the international side. So, I mean, there's a lot of digital nomads out there, there's a lot of expats out there. Maybe they don't want to use their local bank account. 
Can you explain some of the ways or reasons that offshore banking might be able to assist with them? Yeah, so, you know, briefly mentioned, you know, when you're within the U.S. financial system, uh, wire transfers flow. Think of it like, um, think of it like a massive highway, like six-lane highway. Um, that's the U.S. financial system. And then when you go outside of that, it's, it's like a dirt road, basically. And so if you're using a local U.S.-based bank, they understand that ecosystem. They don't understand the, the, the gravel road, and that's kind of our speciality. So if you're a very international business and you have multiple suppliers, um, multiple accounts, oil scattered around the world, you're going to need an international bank to facilitate every, um, every you know, wire in or out that you, that you may need for your business. What about people who are living in a country and have a like nine to five job? Um, would offshore banking make sense for them or should they just be using a local bank uh, where they have their residency? So for example, um, and, and, a, and a Canadian living in Singapore or a Canadian living in Thailand, do you think that an offshore bank is the right option for them if they have some type of a job or is it really for uh, the examples that you just mentioned? Well, typically in most, most regions throughout the world, you would use an international bank in that location. If you're working there, you would you would use it until such time you got residency or citizenship and then you'd move off into a local bank. But during that period of time when you actually don't have access to the local banking system, you would actually use an international bank to, to, get, to get started in the jurisdiction. Because I'm, I'm hammering home on this point because I hear from people all the time, they put up objections of this is not for me or this doesn't make sense for me. So it's like, for me, it's really important the people who are listening today, are they, you know, the first question everyone is always going to ask is, is this for me? I think that in everything we do, we have to understand, is this for me or is this someone else? Is this for somebody else? Is this only for people who are worth $100 million or billionaires or Apple and Google or is this for everyday folks? Uh, sure. I, I guess there's also variations here. So, you know, we've touched on the financing property aspect. We've touched on you have an international business, you're, you're an entrepreneur. There's also another huge aspect, which I think is international banking is utilized the most for, and that's asset protection. Um, you know, people set up corporate structures, they set up trusts, and, and those they therefore have a corporate account. Um, you know, it's, it's a way for you to manage and preserve your money for, for generations by, by having an international, you know, split, split up your your footprint, you, you may live you know, in country A, but then your, your corporation is in country B and your corporate accounts in, in company C. It's just a, a way to help divert, not just asset protection, but diversify. Um, you know, mm -hmm. So give me some examples of, uh, how to say, situations where an offshore bank would help with asset protection. Like, can't, like no one can just go into Wells Fargo in take your money out of the bank if you live in the States. I mean, what's the difference by having it offshore? Yes, yeah, so um, well, as I mentioned before, it's obviously Belize Bank Secrecy. People can't just um, come in and request. There actually has to be a, you know, a court order. There's a process that's followed before any information is ever handed over. Um, I, I guess one example that came to mind when, when you mentioned that was um, you know, a certain structure that I've seen often uh, and, and more, more recently is, for example, a Panama company um, it's, it's a zero tax jurisdiction, um, so you, you have the company here, you have the corporate accounts in Belize, so now you've got not only two different jurisdictions, you've got two different legal systems, and you've got two different languages. So um, a lot of people are starting to, you know, not just house everything in one country, but actually split it up. So for me, I think when I work with clients or when I do a lot of my writing, I find that offshore banking is probably the first step that a lot of people make when they go into the offshore markets. Yep. Um, you know, there's different degrees of how far you want to go down this rabbit hole. How, what type of profession you have, what you do for a living, what your situation is, your business situation. And of course, I think this is an opportune time to say, you're not giving financial advice in this interview. I'm not giving legal advice and I'm certainly not giving tax advice. Um, this is just for educational purposes. But have you also seen this that People who enter the offshore markets, maybe banking is the first thing that they take their put their yeah, foot into the water. Yeah, typically it's the first step, and, and one of the reasons this this happens is because when you get residency in another country, they it's, it's very smart, in fact. So the governments will kind of outsource their compliance and due diligence. So if you're good enough to get a bank account, you're therefore good enough to to go and get residency thereafter. So 
yeah, typically it is, is the first step that I've noticed to get the accounts and then you know, to carry on doing whatever else that you wanted to, to possibly achieve. Mm -hmm. And then what comes next usually? Um, a foundation, a, a multi-generational trust, or is it something maybe a little bit simpler? Gosh, we, we see all, all various kinds. Um, it's it's um, you know trust foundations, IBCs, local companies. We see a whole mix of. It's not just I wouldn't necessarily put my finger on it and say that's you know, generally what we get. It's it's varied. It's all, all, all types. Yeah, I was being a little bit um, how to say facetious because I had people who come out and they're like, yeah, I want to have a Panama Foundation, or I want to have a Belize Trust or a Nevis Trust, and it's like, okay. Cool, we can do that for you. Let's look at your situation. Let's look at some of the things that you already have in place. And maybe an IBC, maybe an LLC is a simpler uh, structure that will take care of the things. And obviously, you know, we won't get into too much of the weeds about the different structures. You know, today we're to talk about finance and banking, and, and I do want to save some time for obviously the book. And the sure. Now look, it's it's highly variable. So I'm sure in your line of business, you know, you have to look at the complete. Kind of background of the person and, and you know residencies where they you know where they're wanting to go what are they trying to achieve and uh, it's it's not very linear it's it's um, it's, it's quite a process you have to look at it and it's, it's complete entirety. So. Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about the jurisdictions. So obviously you're the senior vice president of a bank in Belize, but maybe mention a couple other jurisdictions that are very famous or you know I, I don't expect you to the other jurisdictions on the back, maybe that's not much, not in your best uh, interest. But you know, people maybe they would only think of like Gibraltar and Switzerland, Hong Kong, Singapore. But actually, the offshore markets are quite a bit bigger. Yeah. What are some of the other popular ones that you've seen? Well, obviously, um, you know, Switzerland and Lebanon were, were quite popular for, for quite a number of years. Um, obviously, with what's occurred with, with you know, the American government, um, trust has actually been broken with those two jurisdictions. So they're not as popular as they were. Um, yeah, as for Hong Kong, similar situation right now, you know, with, with, the, with the Chinese government, um, you know, a lot of concern as to the future there. So um, I, I've seen in, in the last six to nine months a lot, a lot of interest from Hong Kong, actually. Um, other popular ones, um, Obviously, we stick out in, in, in Central America, South America, due to English being the primary language. A lot of people um, you know, really appreciate that, that they can actually reach someone and, and they speak English. Um, you know, you've got a few Caribbean countries, Caymans, essentially the same. Um, also, trust has been broken there with, with um, you know, certain government action. Um, yeah, I mean, also, yeah, we've, we've also kind of all been in the same boat at one point in time. I'm sure you've heard of de-risking. Um, you know, that, that hit the region here in Central America very hard. Um, you know, Belize, ourselves, we've, we've pulled out of it, others haven't, but um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it ebbs and flows. It, uh, you know, you were once considered the best, you know, then it, it, it ebbs and flows all the time, depending on the government that comes in, you know, depending on, on what other governments impose themselves on that, on that country. So yeah, it's, it's, never, it's never, you know, you're going to find a list that says, you know, this is one to 10, and this is going to be one to ten you know, for the next twenty years. Mm -hmm. But for the listeners, maybe break down a little bit more what that means, because um, you know we both work in this industry, so maybe sure. we understand some of the buzzwords or some of the uh, special phrases and technology. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so, so de-risking essentially was um, a, a lot of the large American banks. Um, they decided to pull a plug on on the region, really. So they decided that it wasn't worth their while to facilitate um, wire transfers. Um, in, in, the Central, in Central America and the Caribbean, and um, it was it was virtually overnight they they kind of pulled the plug. And um, you know when you don't really have enough adequate time to plan, and you know the plug hits pulled, it, it was a very um, dark kind of moment for a while for a lot of countries. But um, as I said, we've been fortunate to have relationships to be able to continue and, and to grow. But um, you know other jurisdictions haven't been um, as as fortunate as, as we have. So we're. For a lot of these banks to go forwards, were there new regulations that were imposed from the global community that would kind of bring you guys back in, or how did that work? It wasn't really new new regulations. It was more these um, American-based banks that um, it, was, it was a calculation point of view. So how much are we essentially um, generating from from these regions, from these countries, and what is the 
perceived risk to us. And then, it, you know, someone, you know, one or several analysts sat down and uh, calculated whether they should, you know, be in that business and they decided to essentially pull out and uh, pull out quite quickly in some cases. And, uh, yeah, of course. Well, it's kind of scary to think when someone else has so much power over your business. I mean, a lot of times we go offshore so we have more control over yeah. our business and more protection, but it does still show how long of an arm some of these financial institutions have. Yeah, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's, we're not considered like a, our own self-contained you know, boat in the ocean. You know, in order for us to actually um, to work, we need multiple suppliers throughout the world and all interconnected kind of interests in order to. So, yeah, we rely. On, we might be headquartered in Ambergris um, in Belize, but you know, we've we've got we've got to set up a new car program through a Canadian company that has has a base in Panama. You know, our correspondents in Puerto Rico that have an FX company in London. So it's, it's this interconnected, globalized world. Like the, the, the cat's essentially out the bag. You can't, mm-hmm. can't stop it now. We're, we're all just, you know, interconnected. And you guys still use Swift and everything? Yes, we, we do. Just, we, have, we have our own Swift code. We don't utilize it. We, we piggyback off, off our correspondence and, and their Swift code. But it's been working pretty effectively, um, I'd like to. Okay, Okay, well, I guess this is an opportune time because I want to know and understand a little bit more about FATCA, so the Foreign Act Tax Compliant Act, and CRS. You know, maybe you can talk about these things in general terms, sure. uh, what they are, how they affect people, how this fits into the offshore world, uh, whatever you feel comfortable with, I suppose. Yeah, it's, look, I'm, I'm not, nowhere near an international tax accountant, and, you know, feel free to reach out to Mikhail if, if you want an introduction for for someone, um, you know, it's quite a good lead-on section talking about de-risking because um, essentially what they were saying is if you don't become FATCA compliant, we're then going to remove our services as a correspondent um, from from your your region or your, or your bank. Um, you know, so you basically, in a sense, it's no matter if you in America, no matter where you are in the world, you've essentially got to report your bank accounts and um, what you do um, and CRS. Similar thing, common reporting standards. It's the European version of, of the American FATCA, and uh, same same kind of thing. Where no matter where you are in the world, you, you typically um, have have to identify you know who you are, and that can then be reported back into a centralized kind of database. From my understanding, CRS was basically uh, they looked around and saw FATCA and saw how much money they were getting from this, <laughs> and then they went, "Hmm, I like that. I think let's uh, let's put that in the rest of the world." And uh, it's kind of being rolled out all across the world where information is going to be shared from the banks back to your home country, where you are a tax resident or where you have your nationality. Um, I mean, this is something that a lot of people need to learn about and understand because um, it is rolling out right now across the world. And I think most countries in the world are going to end up having... Different carrots and sticks in order to get people, you know, to get these countries to where they want them to be. Um, you know, I also say, you know, don't think that you can essentially get away with it. You've seen Switzerland and Lebanon, and you know, people that thought they could get away with it, their names ended up getting reported um, on the IRS's websites. Um, you know, to so speak to an international accountant professional who can help guide you through through the system. We will just take a quick break. Over the last couple of years of building up the expat money show and escape artist, I have been interviewed more than 100 times on podcasts, news programs, blogs, magazines, and newspapers. Well, recently I was a guest on the Brian Nichols show, and he was one of the best hosts I have ever met. I immediately started messaging my friends and business contacts that they needed to listen to the show right now. The show is for people who are tired of partisan politics, who are having trouble finding objective news without the media narrative, and for folks who want to expand their skills and understanding of complex issues as they learn from noted entrepreneurs, elected officials, C-level executives, economists, and more. The show has been going for nearly three years, and now with three episodes per week, there is a ton to keep you entertained and informed. Their flagship show airs on Friday mornings right after the Expat Money Show. So you can literally listen to a new episode of the Expat Money Show, then immediately listen to the Brian Nichols Show on your favorite podcasting app. 
Noted guests include Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, Matt Kibbe, Brad Palumbo, Mark Lobliner, Austin Peterson, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp, and of course, me, Mikkel Thorpe, on episode 133. So what I want you to do right now is put this episode on pause and go and subscribe and turn on notifications to The Brian Nichols Show. That's B-R-I-A-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S Show. And if you go to briannicholsshow.com or if you search for Brian Nichols on your favorite podcasting app, you'll find it there. Okay, let's jump back into the episode. Yeah, well, I think that a lot of times people think that what we do in the offshore markets is like out of a movie and you can just walk into a bank with a numbered account and withdraw a million dollars. I don't know if those days ever really existed, but if they did, they're certainly it's not so here great. anymore. Yeah. Like, uh, the due diligence and compliance is, um, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, that you know, within the U.S. financial system, it flows. You know, so when you move outside of that, you know, now you need to really determine who you are, what you're doing, and so yes, sometimes um, you know, we do ask a few more questions than, than, um, than possibly if you had a local bank account in America. Okay, well that's. A perfect segue, because I do want to understand a little bit more about KYC and now know your customer, anti-money laundering type of documentation. In general terms, what would someone need to provide to get an offshore bank account? Sure. So for, for example, uh, personal accounts, um, pretty stock standard, you know, copy of your passport, proof of address. Um, we're, we're going to look for a you know, character reference letter. So a perfect thing would be, you know, if you have a lawyer for couple of years or if you've got an existing bank account get that bank to, to write your letter and um, obviously the bank's application that you would complete uh, pretty pretty standard stuff um, for a corporate application obviously the incorporation documents from whichever country you've incorporated in and then once again your proof of address passports um, to and, and a lot of that like the, the proof of address essentially is to determine that you're not a local resident or citizen, so it's to appease our regulator that, you, that you're not a, a local resident. Well, and I've even seen with some of the offshore banks, they're looking for a CV, they're looking for, um, yeah, sometimes not just one reference letter, but sometimes multiple reference letters, um, letters from your bank, especially in ones that you've had for extended periods of time. Um, there was something I was, I was looking at the other day um, they wanted to see an entire business plan, like yeah. a flushed out business plan. Yeah, we, we do get on occasions, and I think that happens with international banks when we um, when we become a little bit unsure as to who you are and what you're doing. You know, don't essentially put an application that you're a consultant and that you're going to make 100 million this year. You know, if you if you do that, we're going to then ask, okay, can you show us the business plan that you're going to get to that 100 million? How are you going to generate that 100 million? Where's that 100 million coming from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if if you're a consultant, who are your clients that are going to pay you? up to you know, that, those amounts. So um, when, when people essentially come a bit generic, then that's what we, you know, kind of a flag and then we want to know exactly who you are and what you uh, plan to do with their account. So is that a good tip then for people who are applying for an offshore bank account is to be detailed, make sure you take your time on these. This is not just like your normal one back home where you can just slap anything down and yeah, just yeah, open no, up to yeah, have the cashier, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's quite a good point. And, and you know, don't, just be, as I said, generic, you know, actually you have some specificity as to how many wires are going to go in and out every month. What do you think the average balance is going to be? You know, let us know who your you know, clients, suppliers are so we can just, you know, because um, essentially how international banking works, we, we'll check the first couple and once there's a, you know, we're comfortable, there's, there's, a, there's, there's enough that we know that, you know, you're okay, then it starts to flow. You know, we start to get towards kind of the, the U.S. financial system, where I was saying it flows like a six-lane highway, but mm-hmm. and, until that point, you know, we don't really know who you are. Um, you know, you've opened an account remotely. You know, we allow you to open an account remotely, but we're not entirely sure of who you are. So, you know, if the difference is in the states. You know, you're probably going to walk into your, your branch. You're going to show yourself at the branch. You're going to give your passport, your actual passport. So we, you know, we using notaries and, and there's a whole trust factor. So, in the beginning, we, we're possibly going to just. Um, just check you out a little bit, a little bit more, and then, and then once yeah, there's there's some momentum, then it's a bit more free flowing from there. Mm-hmm. Well, that made me think of two really important things. So I guess first is that people have to understand 
that it's not really like your right to have an offshore bank account. Like I think as a Canadian, I could pretty much walk into any one of our big five banks and just open an account right then and there. And I mean, it would be pretty weird or pretty strange for them to uh, refuse me an account. But I found with offshore banking, um, it's not your right. You really have to show, you really have to be compliant. Yep. You really have to jump through a lot of hoops for this. Have you seen that as well? Like, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think that obviously the perception is when you say offshore, people think that they can maybe cut corners or take a chance as to, um, and you know, don't don't think that because you know we are quite thorough. We we do look at um, you know we we are regulated. You know we there's a process that needs to be to be completed. And, and you're right. You know um, if you come from a certain jurisdiction, yes, you have access to that banking. But when you go outside of your jurisdiction, yeah, it's it's, it's a bit of a privilege. It's not um, you you don't just walk in off the streets and um, open a bank account. There's a process that has to be followed. Well, and then I guess the second thing that I, I mentioned was that I found a lot of times when opening companies for people, you know, someone might come in and they want to get a company with one organization and then they go, think they can just go straight to the bank or they can go through a different organization sure. to get the bank account. Um, I mean, the bank account I've seen is the more difficult thing. Yeah. Opening a company is actually pretty, pretty straightforward. straightforward. Yeah. No, I, I agreed. And, um, you know, also another kind of advice, I'd say, you know, try and stick with the, the same person that maybe incorporated because, um, you know, they have your incorporated documents, so it's easier for them to then issue everything to the bank. And so you keep it kind of in, in one whole group as opposed to splitting up parts and certain people have certain documents. So, yeah, I would I would say that um, delays happen when people go to multiple parties for multiple things. It, it is actually a lot easier when you just use one provider for this. Mm -hmm. And I think that with a lot of providers, they've built up a reputation or they've built up yes. uh, a relationship with the banks. Right. So it's not their first time, you yeah. know, coming to open. And, and, and that's, yeah, it's completely true. And so um, these, we call them referral agents now, they, they would have, um, you know, done bank, banking with a particular international bank for quite some time. So then they start to understand the nuances there. They start to understand, like, they look at an application like that's not going to work with, with this bank and so that's why sometimes it's really good to use these offshore providers because they actually know how to turn that gravel road which i mentioned earlier into kind of the highway they know how to actually help you facilitate that, that, that account opening and, and a lot of people you touched on them before they're a little bit naive in, in a sense and they'll just drop down anything um, which raises you know further flags and complicates the entire process of, of account opening well in even just having someone who has experience with this look at your application beforehand and then be like no you missed this line or yeah. no you need to have this document or this is in the wrong language it needs to be translated yeah. or before you make the application because i always think when you make that application you wanted to get it right the first, first time. time yeah i mean a lot of these referral agents the, the good ones um, are the ones that actually do kind of due diligence so they've got their own um, forms, short forms that these people would fill out, and then they would kind of really pre-qualify. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we found that those those generally are um, far better to deal with um, than the ones that just send you everything without even checking what um, what their particular client has actually given them. So I know that you touched on it really briefly about the different types of currencies, and we talked about the local currency. But what I want to explore a little bit is the accounts that can actually hold multiple currencies, or when you have one application, possibly you can have several accounts that have different types of currencies. Can you talk to me about that? Because I think it is a sure. unique feature, unique yeah. thing in offshore banking. Well, yeah, I mean, that plays to asset protection diversification, which I mentioned earlier. So, you know, you could be living in country A, uh, you know, your company's incorporated in country B, your bank's in, in country C, and then that bank can hold uh, a currency that it's not related to any of those countries A, B, and C. So uh, typically, the the term is basket of currencies. So it's it's diversification. So um, you know, if you do I just have everything in the US dollar, maybe some euros, maybe some British pounds. So mm -hmm. it's kind of just hedging your bets against uh, everything that's going on with, with the world. And you know, the way the world's gone in twenty twenty, it, it's it's um, a good thing to possibly diversify. But so have you seen those are the main currencies that people will hold, or like? Is there a couple of others that are usually um, 
in offshore bank. Yeah, I mean, typically, you know, I kind of referenced before, so it's, it's five main ones, essentially, that are always asked for. It's obviously the US dollar, Canadian dollar, British pound, Swiss franc, and the euro. Uh, and the reason, I guess, those are requested is because the people that are getting the offshore banking and getting this diversification play, they're coming from a country that doesn't have access to these currencies. So, you know, they're from a jurisdiction that will never be able to, to get those currencies. And so let's just say you're sitting in Turkmenistan or, um, you know, Singapore or whatever, like, the, you know, the, generally you're not going to possibly get British pounds there or, or euros, etc. Well, and I'm, I'm going to tee this one up a little bit. What about RMB? Have you seen that the Chinese currency is becoming more popular? Is it, I've seen some accounts, some banks that are now starting to hold it, which I was a bit surprised. Yeah, slowly. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that that it's uh, become mainstream it's it's starting to come online with certain banks but uh, you know still very much in its infancy I, I wouldn't go out on a limb and say that um that the rmb is going to replace the us dollar tomorrow i think it's still very much far away from, from that point and i said tee up because i guess my next question is about the people or the nationality or residency who can apply for offshore banks yes. is it open to every different nationality in the world, or have you seen a couple of countries that are maybe a little bit blackballed? Well, look, there's, there's actually two parts, I, I guess, to that question, you know, be quite cognizant of the jurisdiction right, and, and the residency. And what I mean by that is like, yes, you might get cheaper incorporation possibly in the Marshall Islands or, or Vanuatu, um, but some international banks won't actually touch. Actually, what I'm referring to first is a this is a super important topic, and I want to actually dig into that one really deep. But I mean, I was thinking of things like Iran or Venezuela or yeah. people from those types oh, of nationalities, so, you know, or possibly China. Yeah, which well, is it, my comment to the RMB. It, it's it's both really. So it's it's also the incorporated company and the um, and, and so the, the structure and, and the national. Yeah, so okay, both, okay. both actually get looked at. So you know, you could actually even find yourself in a jurisdiction for your company and your citizenship that are both, and, and it's just a complete no-go at, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that sometimes if you have a structure and you might be Iranian or Venezuelan, possibly if, if the company's in, in good standing in like the UK or America, so it possibly can work. So, mm-hmm. but, but residency really is not just res- citizenship, where, where you're actually from. And, and yes, we've got North Korea, Somalia, Iran, Venezuela, um, yeah, the, the, there are ones that are a complete no-go that actually, if they even, you know, pop up in the application, not just for you, you know, the director, shareholder, the company, but even if your suppliers or your, your clients, you know, once, once that gets identified, then we're, we're going to stop it, really look at it, and it's, it's very unlikely that it's actually going to go through at that point. So. So then let's look at the jurisdictions. What are favorable jurisdictions for maybe the company that is held? Sure. And then like, what are some of the ones that are in the offshore space are not so popular or maybe banks don't like so much? Yeah, so yeah, I, I just mentioned, you know, obviously on the lower end of the spectrum, we've got your, you know, Marshall Islands, the Vanuatu that are perceived as, um, you know, kind of cheaper and, and quicker and, and, and less due diligence in order to, uh, mm-hmm. in order to get the, uh, the company incorporated, and then you've obviously got um, on the high end, you know, your Switzerland's, your, your Singapore's, etc. That, um, that, that you know, there's a bit of a process that you can't just you know go online and, and, and purchase one of them. There's a little bit of a you know, due diligence that happens, and then you know, coming into the middle of the road, you've got your um, you know, you've got your Belize, maybe your Panamas that that are kind of considered not that cheap but not that expensive, and, and there is still a little bit that um, of questioning that, that goes into it, and so still seen as favorable with, with most banks. Mm-hmm. So those would kind of fit in like Nevis, EVI, yeah, would be, any of those types of yeah, things. I, the Caribbeans in general? Or? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say, it, it, to be honest, I'd, I'd say that I see them as a little bit less than like a, a Belize and a, the Caribbean um, jurisdiction as a whole is, is, is not seen. You know, there's always been a lot of scandal the last 10 to 15 years, so mm-hmm. it's, it's um, you know, from, from a corporation point of view, possibly we would look at it just a little smidge closer than, than others. You know, from a residency, um, possibly not as much, but from, certainly from a corporation mm-hmm. point of view, um, you know, we would say like, well, why, 
why why need us why just you know give us a reason why you you went there kind of thing so we were just like well and the ones that i've been seeing popping up a lot now are like seychelles and um what's the other one uh mauritius, next mauritius yeah. thank you that that was the one i was thinking of um what's the reputation once again in general terms we're not trying to be racist <laughs> here by any means i mean this is we're just talking uh I mean, uh, one opinion. Yeah, no. Look, Mauritius is I perceive it as, as possibly a little, you know, a little bit better than Seychelles. It's um, quite a big banking jurisdiction. They've um, got some really big banks, Standard Bank. Um, you know, Barclays. Kind of, there's some big, big players there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also something to keep in mind. Yes, you can also incorporate in, in a jurisdiction, but where, where's the place of business? Where's the address? Where, where do you sit? Um, mm-hmm. That all, that all plays into um, who you are and, and, and what you intend to do with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so you might incorporate, but if you've got like a legitimate address in Luzon or Zurich or you know or, mm-hmm. or Paris or something like that, um, you know, that can also help an application when, when you can. Well, and I have nothing bad to say about the Seychelles. I mean, I got married in the Seychelles. <laughs> I love the country, um, but people have to understand when they're applying for companies. You know, because if you just go online and start searching, okay, offshore company, yeah. you know, why is one a thousand dollars and why is yeah. Switzerland? Seven thousand dollars or six thousand dollars. There's actually a, another one I put in there is maybe the Comores. Um, I'd say the Comores is a bit you know, further down Seychelles. Um, I've seen a lot of international banks that, um, especially because the Comores has like three islands um, mm-hmm. and they're kind of separatist in a, in a certain degree. And um, yeah, you know, typically if you come out of Comores, you know, we put, it's, we're going to look at you a lot closer than, than say uh, mm-hmm. than say Switzerland. So. Right, I think this comes to a, a larger point. If the listeners today are looking at incorporating offshore and banking offshore for whatever reasons you have, I mean, cheaper is not always better. You might end up actually paying more in the end because of all the things that we've been talking about today. So you really have to look at these things. And if you don't know the answers, I mean, you're more than welcome to reach out to us at Escape Artist. I mean, if you go to escapeartist.com, we work out with all the lawyers and the accountants. They can definitely coach or consult you on these types of things. And that is a little bit of a shameless plug. But I mean, there's lots of other great organizations, even if you don't want to work with us. But the point is to know what you're doing, because um, if you make sure you don't make mistakes at the beginning, then it can actually save you a lot of headache down the road. Time, money, effort. I mean, you obviously, if you incorporate cheaply, you've now taken a path. You've already set down that path because now, um, there are certain banks that are not going to actually touch you at that point in time. So, you know, by you taking that first step by yourself without speaking to a professional, you, you now set yourself down a path kind of thing. So, you know, do, do speak to someone, um, you know, a professional in the space and, and that can actually help you and save you actually a lot of money um, by laying out a plan for you uh, before you take these steps. And then you actually literally have to disregard them because uh, they're not going to work for you when you get to the end. Mm-hmm. And in your opinion, talking about reputation, do you think from a customer standpoint, if a customer sees an invoice and it's from a bank in some random country they've never heard of, do you think that affects people's psychology? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just, it's that that's one aspect. So when you invoice and you've got like a Marshall Islands company, you know, people are going to be like, is this, is this guy even serious? You know, if we buy these goods, is he actually going to deliver them? Um, and, and it's not just that because also, you, as I mentioned, you've gone down this path, so now you're probably using a bank that has a very convoluted way of doing wire transfers. Mm-hmm. So it's probably going to, you know, you're going to see this this long list of different banks and intermediaries that this has to go through in order to get paid or to pay someone. So it, it's not just that, but then also even if they get through that first step and say, okay, I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. then how do I even get the money thereafter? So. Well, that's a good segue because I do want to talk about the cost of offshore banking because a lot of times. People just think it's going to be, you know, free transfers everywhere. The bank account is free to open up. You get a free card. You get a free credit card. You get, you know, your your fees for the bank are three dollars and sixty cents. You know, all this stuff that people are used to with the local banks. And, I mean, well, first of all, like break down a little bit of the costs sure. in the offshore banking, and then maybe as a secondary thing is why offshore banking costs a little bit more. 
what's well, it's it's well, simplistically it's it's volume. So you know your your bigger bank in, in the states or Canada, you know, they literally just have to charge you a couple of cents um, you know, over volume. They can make a lot of money. Whereas generally we smaller boutique private, we we kind of work with you. So you know, like a Citibank, uh, you call them. It's going to take an hour before you you get to speak to someone on the phone. Mm-hmm. Whereas us, you call and then you reach someone and we know who you are. Um, so that's that's um, you know, right there is, is, is one of the main differences between between the two. It's just just generally the, the amount of clients and, and, the, and the client service that you're actually receiving. Well, and I've seen from the capitalization ratio. So if you have a bank in Canada, the UK, the United yeah. States, I mean, if they're holding two percent or four yeah. percent and they're loaning every other penny out, I mean that's how they're making a lot of money. They're making money off of your money. But with a lot of offshore banks, their capitalization ratio is a lot higher. Yeah, right? so it's yeah, liquidity. So we, a lot of a lot of those deposits that come in actually yeah, sorry, have to, yeah, liquidity they, they have to sit there and, and actually you can't actually utilize them in any way. They just they have to sit there untouched um, through, through the life of the, of the deposit. Yeah. Okay. Because um, I've seen a lot of times when people want to open an offshore bank, they expect it should be free. I've seen in most cases, I mean, you're going to work with an organization, uh, a company who will help you to open it. It'll be $400, $500 to open your account. Usually you need to have a minimum amount. I've seen for banks in Singapore is a quarter of a million dollars. Um, Austria can be a million dollars or a million euros yeah. um, before they'll even look at your bank because I think that a lot of the banks don't want to take on that risk. They don't want to do that type of paperwork. Um, it's not worthwhile if you're coming in. You're going to put yeah. fifty bucks in there. You know? Well, at that point, it basically weeded out a lot of people. Yeah, if they make the threshold so hard, it actually yeah, it weeded out a lot. So, um, well, that's interesting because I mean, I've seen people, or I've seen banks, I should say, where the minimum deposit is anywhere from say like two hundred and fifty thousand, like a quarter of a million dollars in Singapore. I've even seen as high as like a million euros in like Austria or Switzerland or Germany or some of these types of places you might be banking in. Yes, some Swiss private banks. You're looking at like five million before they'll even um, before they'll even look at you, and then you're looking at um, an application fee of five, ten, fifteen thousand before they'll even review those those documents. You know, in comparison, Belize, you know, it's fourteen fifty a month, a thousand dollar minimum. Um, I've, I've seen in Puerto Rico, pasta goes up to about 75 a month, Cayman's about 100. So um, depends on jurisdiction, depends on the bank. Um, you know, like I alluded to just now, where it's also client services, where, you know, like for example, City, it's very automated. So you're not going to really be able to get to speak to a person about an issue or why that you need to actually do. Uh, whereas, you know, with, with Belize, you know, you can actually call the bank, they'll pick up the phone, they'll actually help you through, through whatever um, request that you need. Yeah, well, I've seen some of the offshore banks where, like, my friends have the guy's uh, WhatsApp number, their private yeah. banker's WhatsApp number. I'm like, that's pretty cool. I guess technically I have my, my, my banker's WhatsApp number. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so then talk to me from the, the cost standpoint from, like, the day-to-day transactions. So, okay, so we talked about the minimum balance yeah. and, you know, the opening fees, but what have you seen the differences between domestic and offshore sure. in that way? I mean, you know, once again, using kind of Belize as an example, you know, we, you're looking at $10 incoming, about $100 outgoing uh, a wire. Um, and, and it generally can go almost through the roof in the sense where some banks will apply percentages. Okay. You know, so, you know, on the lower end of the spectrum, that, that works fantastically, but until you have to move five or seven and a half million, mm-hmm. then it becomes quite cost prohibitive at that, at that point. Okay. okay. Well, and maybe this is a good segue because I want to talk about your book and about digital revolution. Sure in banking, maybe how some of these other organizations are shaking things up. But I think between that that segue, between that question, the last thing I want to talk about is like longevity, because I, I think that's kind of part of my concern with some of these fintechs. And like I said, we'll jump into the fintechs in a second. But what about longevity with the banks? Well, I mean, you know, right now, there's, there's um, a, you know, a lot of people didn't ever plan for this pandemic. And so uh, these fintech challenger banks, de novo banks, they, um, they were banking on the fact that they were going to get 100,000 clients this quarter or 250,000 clients. And when that basically all dried up, 
a lot of these have actually fallen over. One of the first ones in the States that, that's actually already fallen over. There's already several in Europe that are facing a lot of wow. challenges right now. So, you know, so it's amazing that these legacy type banks that have actually uh, kind of staying the test of time and that they're still, you know, even with their myriad of problems, they, they're still able to weather the storm that's what's in front of them. Because, I mean, even with the, the banking world, like I, I'm, I'm Canadian and we look at the big five banks I mean, those banks are 150 years old, 200 years old. And then you kind of have the next set of banks, which might be that 20 to 30 years old, which I think a lot of the offshore banks would kind of fall into that. And then you have these fintech startup digital banks, yeah. which I mean, are like six months old or yeah. two years old, you know, on the, on the long end yeah. in some cases. I mean, a lot of it's also, um, you know, like segmented. So a lot of them are are going up against these these big files and saying, okay, we're going to compete with you on financing, or we're going to compete with you with um, card programs. You know, so they're not actually attacking them from all flanks, but they're actually just deciding to go after one segment, which they think they can actually you know take on the big five with. Okay, so talk to us uh, in basic terms about what you've seen. What are the good things that are happening in the space? Yeah. What are the bad things? What are the challenges? What are the the, the give and take, because I mean, in, with everything, there's always a give and take. There's always a negative. There's always a positive. I want to give everybody a realistic view here. Sure. So, I mean, the, the basic premise of my book was what I was seeing in, in the financial services industry over the last couple of years. And that was, it's not necessarily your, your big five that, that's you know, the, the issue, the worry for, for people. It's, it's more your, your Amazons, your squares. And, and what I mean by that is like, you know, you selling widgets on Amazon. Uh, Amazon knows exactly how many widgets you're producing, you're selling, how much it costs there, even though your profitability. So if Amazon decided to be a bank and you then went to Amazon and said, look, I need a $50,000 loan or $100,000 loan or $250,000 loan, Amazon almost in seconds can calculate you know, the interest rate that potentially can give you when you can actually pay it back. Um, and the same thing for Square. So, you know, Square, all these mom and pop stores throughout, throughout the States, you know, Barbers, hair salons, nail salons, etc. They, they know exactly the turnover and, and you know, how much how much you're essentially making. And so, like a square, which are actually looking at potentially a bank charter in Utah at one point, um, they didn't go through with it. But you know, if they do get into the game, they, they've also got all this data at their fingertips. So I think what I was trying to say with the book is, it's going to become big data. Is, is, is where and who has the data? And and so the the big five, I think, shouldn't necessarily be worrying too much about. Some of these fintechs, it's more your, your Amazons, your squares that, um, mm -hmm. that, that are going to become, I think, potentially a big father at some point in the future. So with Amazon, I mean, I know that they have a credit card, they have their Amazon credit yeah. card, but that's still just done through a Visa or a MasterCard. So that's a established yeah. platform. Do you think that they will actually enter the space where they'll be doing like the next step. Yeah. So they, they are taking the steps. So you've okay. already seen them do this this type of thing with, with the cards. You know, I think they're doing some sort of financing in the UK right now. So yeah, as I mentioned, the Square they already looked at a bank chart in Utah. So they're starting to say, hey, you know, what actually happens if we do become a bank? Because then we can actually do everything in house. So it, it's it's definitely I, I do think we're going to get uh, possibly even a Google. You know, you see wow. you know the wallet system. You're already put, inputting all your different various debit cards, credit cards into the wallet. Mm -hmm. You know, so Google's, on, you know, I'm sure, looking at this right now, going, what happens if we actually become the bank and, and then we are issuing a card, our own cards via the wallets? You know, this, this is where I think um, where it's going, and, and that was the basic premise of, of the book. Um, well, then you have to understand, or people have to understand, the most expensive part of any business is the cost to acquire a customer. Absolutely. I mean, that is it. That is how much can you spend to acquire a customer, and whoever can spend the most wins. Now, they already have the customers. The customers they're, they, they're already there. They've already paid for the customers. So everything is already is, is all on the back end, which, I mean, allows them to do things that a startup just is not going to be able to do. So it's really not the these, these new tech companies starting in someone's garage or something like that that you think is really going to change the whole industry. Do you no, think it's more the big companies... Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously you always need invariably going to get your one or two that are going to you know, come from the garage, you know, mm -hmm. like your, your Apples and, and Microsofts, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's ones that we're not, people are not really looking at that, that you know, that hard at. And so, like, even your Alibaba's, um, you know, once they start 
slipping into the banking sector with, with their own banks, I think that's going to really change the, the dynamic of the industry. And um, Well, I mean, I've been to China, whatever, 25, 30 times, something like that, and watching the payment processing, how they do in China with Alipay and WePay and these types of things, I mean, they're so far ahead, yeah. it's unbelievable. And I mean, okay, we have Apple Pay, we have Google Pay. I've never used either of them in my entire life. And I would consider myself very tech savvy and have the nicest and newest phone at all times. And I've never seen it. But I mean, you go to China and it'll be some 70 year old little woman uh, selling uh, durian on the side of the road and she'll take out and pay with a QR code. code. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're paying for your taxi with a QR code. Yeah. You're sending red packet at Chinese New Year. Um, all of these things uh, instantly, and it's it. I've never seen any problems with it. Um, it works so fluid. So I'm, I'm curious what's going to happen. Either if those companies are going to try to enter the Western market, or the big Western tech companies are going to go, hey, that's a really good idea. I mean, let's copy that or modify it. Because I know QR codes are kind of like. Gen two, Gen three type yeah, yeah. of thing. I mean, that's a resurgence now. But it's, um, yeah. yeah, no, look, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, it's gonna be interesting to see how it all plays out. I mean, you know, I go back to the point of these fintech challenges. You know, some of them were very card focused. Yeah. You know, but now we're living through a pandemic where no one really wants to touch. Right. You know, so it's great you have a very colourful uh, or a metallic card, but you know, if, if I don't really want to touch it after you've touched it, kind of a thing. So you know, right, you know, right, even use it type of thing. So yeah, it's it's very much. Um, yeah, and, e and even here in Panama, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but like I've, I've started to see a lot of contactless payments. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, pre-pandemic, never saw it. Mm -hmm. You know, now people are starting. You know, it's, it's really pushing the industry just here for when you, you know, you get your delivery or whatever to to actually use it contactless. Well, I always thought it was quite funny because, I mean, the cards are what we're used to with a traditional bank, with our visas or Mastercards or Amex or whatever, and then they talk about how they're reimagining the entire space. What's the first thing they do? They all go out there and get a plastic card. Oh, and I'm like, like, I thought you guys were gonna like start from scratch. Like if we could do everything from scratch, you know, and make it better, and it didn't, it didn't seem like a leap, like a, a quantum leap forwards yeah. to me. I mean, it just looked like a little baby step. It wasn't innovation. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, what's you? Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all segmented once again. I mean, it's not. I mean, you know, going back to offshore banks, I mean, you know, we've, we've kind of got a niche in the international space because, you know, as I mentioned earlier with the financing, um, no one else can provide that. We can provide that. So we've kind of cornered that, that market. So everyone's kind of got their own um, aspect to, to what they can service. And, and I guess what I was trying to say in the book is like the game changer is going to be some of these big tech guys. And, and if they decide, you know, to use the data that they have and use, you know, the worldwide capacity that they already have, mm -hmm. I think that could change change the game. Well, I think those are great insights. You mentioned Google and Square, but what about Apple? What about Netflix? What about, yep. what are the other big ones? Do you think that all the big tech companies are going to get it? Do you think Facebook? I mean, they have some things with yep. Libra. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you've already got Apple. So Apple with Goldman Sachs, you know, with the new Apple card, you know, they're really, the Goldman Sachs have obviously got, Facebook with the, with the messenger, you know, you can actually pay people through messenger. Obviously, Facebook has owns WhatsApp. So in India right now, you can actually make payments through WhatsApp. Wow, okay. Um, yeah. So they're all they're all pretty much dipping their toe into seeing how this can all, can all work for them. Mm -hmm. And I know that in your book, you're on the third iteration of the book, your yeah. third edition. Um, I mean, each edition, are you are you rewriting it? Like, have you seen so much changes? Or are they smaller tweaks? Like, I think this is a good indicator of how the industry is moving. Yeah, it's it's been smaller tweaks from the point of view of your of your Amazons, your Squares, your PayPal's. What we've actually had to add is the cryptocurrencies. So the, this has almost come out of nowhere, um, and and so it's basically the the different editions has been the addition of uh, you know just delving on cryptocurrencies, what they are, where it's going, what we think it's it's possible to do. Because I would say that cryptocurrency is that quantum leap forward in a lot of ways. And I mean, I'm not a fan of 99.99% of the stuff that's out there, but I think that the underlying technology, I mean, that is a disruptor. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, okay. it's, uh, I'm not the, um, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm the biggest crypto, crypto fan exactly. out there, but it's the underlying technology, so it's your blockchain. You know, so if you ever had to like digitize the dollar or the Singaporean dollar, yeah, you can. The blockchain can actually make that make that a reality. And um, I think it's it's more the tech. I think uh, potentially the crypto is a little bit of a fad. Um, probably get a lot of hate for that, but um, it's just yeah. I think the the blockchain is, is more the, the impressive factor for me than, than the actual crypto. So, but it, look, it does it does actually. Yeah, in fairness, you know, you, you do have your your Venezuelans and your Iranians. You know, uh, Zimbabweans that um, that have had an issue um, in, in being able to make payments, to send money to relatives, etc. And you know, this has been like life and death for some, you know, for some people. So it's it's um, it's it's solved some cross-border payments issues that um, no one's actually ever been able to solve. So there, there has been quite a good usage for 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 good. But that goes right into your point of not trying to take on the whole world all at one time, niching down and figuring out the thing that you're going to be able to. Uh, shine in, and I mean, yeah, banking for the unbanked in places like that you just mentioned yeah. in other places in Africa is incredible. And I mean, we've had multiple people on from many different companies from in the cryptocurrency space. We just had Erica Gemma on for episode 102, I want to say it was, 102. And um, we dig into those. So I don't want to make today's episode so much about that, but I do think that Banking for the unbanked is an unbelievable thing because I traveled all through these regions and they might not have a bank account, but everybody has a smartphone. I mean, and they're not necessarily an, an Apple phone, which costs a thousand dollars or a Samsung at a thousand dollars. It's a high quality phone made in China, which is 40 bucks or something like that. Full smartphone. And they're using this to pay in real time. Um, through through their phone and I, I think it's unbelievable really. No, no true. I mean um well there's two points you actually you dealt on there and going back just quickly to crypto the thing is there's bad actors involved and so uh, it it solved a great problem but then you've had all these other bad actors essentially jump in on, on this and so from an international banking perspective we sometimes found it difficult to do due diligence because once that crypto has changed around a couple of times whose money really was it. Um, it's kind of very difficult for us to, and so I think a lot of international banks, it's just easier for us just to say no crypto at this point in time until we can actually get the systems in place to verify exactly uh, what it is. But And then also just on, on the phone, like in Africa, yes, like in Peza, um, you know, throughout Kenya, Wizard in South Africa, I mean, these, these are just amazing technologies. I mean, you had, and safe, and, you know, so you had farmers at the end of the month that had a bag of cash and it's dangerous because yeah. you know, everyone knew that they had the cash to pay the workers. Now they can actually just send it you know, via, via an SMS text message to, mm-hmm. to their workers. And, and not just that, it's, it's safer for the workers because at the end of the month when they used to get back on the trains, you know, they, people know that at the end of the month this guy standing in front of me has received money for his work. Mm-hmm. And so it's just safer all the way around and it's just it's made um, improved, improved life I think in some African countries tremendously. Well, it's super interesting about the Africa because actually I had uh, a guy named Merrick, who's a Polish guy who came on and he had been building startups in Nigeria and listening to his story about doing business there and the tech team was just unbelievable. It was amazing. Um, you have to kind of listen to that episode. I won't, I won't say too much, but he had some problems with Interpol afterwards. Um, yeah, I, I've traveled quite a bit in Africa. I've been to Nigeria multiple times. Um, that's an interesting episode. But just to take things full circle, I guess, for our conversation on banking and fintech and the offshore space, I guess these are the couple of things that I've taken away from the conversation and I want people to keep in mind, I think, if they wanted to get into this or they wanted to open a space. So I guess the first thing that I would say is uh, take your application seriously. This is not like a domestic bank. You really have to spend some time, probably want to work with a third party company um, and make sure that company has a reputation in place with the banks already. Second would be that offshore banking is different price points than domestic. Uh, Offshore banking costs more in most cases um, and that is some of the reasons that we touched on today. So don't get sticker shock. Um, It is often used for ease of business for international business. It can also be used in a lot of ways for asset protection. 
and um, take your jurisdictions seriously, especially when you're setting up the company. Um, you know, whether that's your LLC, your IBC, wherever that might be, um, the reality is that all not all jurisdictions are viewed in the same regard. Um, reputation means a lot in this space. Um, am I missing something? Are those fair statements that I've just made? Or would you add to that? I guess, um, you know, it's not just asset protection, it's diversification. Uh, right. it's, it's, uh, I think they kind of go hand in hand. Um, and yes, jurisdiction does play a big part. So, you know, something that instead of just starting on the process, you know, speak to a professional, maybe it's time to get another residency or another citizenship and actually make the application with that instead of, um, you know, the one that you potentially hold. Perfect. I love it. Luigi, amazing conversation. I really appreciate your time. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to reach out to you, where can we send them? Yeah, so I, I wrote actually a, a fairly comprehensive piece on the Expat Money Show on, on Belize Banking. Um, you know, take take a read of that. So I'm also a contributor for EscapeArtist.com. Um, essentially, all the topics that we've covered today, I've actually written about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're all posted up there. And yeah, feel free to reach out to Mikel and, and he'll make an introduction to me and then we can take a conversation from there. Perfect. I love it. And if people want to pick up the book, where could they find the book? Yeah. What's the name uh, of the book? Sure, it's in all international major bookstores, uh, Amazon, etc. Um, you know, there's, it's three editions. The latest edition is um, from De Gruyter. Um, it's, it's a German publication that, that just did my third edition. Um, you can also get an audio version that's out there. Uh, it's not me. It's a Scottish accent, um, but um, people, people, have, have this positive feedback. So yeah, it's audio. I listened to the audio version. Yeah. I, I actually really like the the narrator for the audio version. I yeah. think he did a good job. So audio Kindle. Take it back. Uh, it's all right there. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, Luigi. Thank and you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Mikael. I just wanted to remind you to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter, EMS Pulse. Right now, we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering. Lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first-time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com. Lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys. And the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Talk soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com.